Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hey guys, it's Anna David here. Okay, so the podcast, we've gone bi-weekly, sorry, bi-monthly. And, you know, a long time ago, somebody told me that that had two meanings, which is to say twice a month or every other month. Don't think that's correct. But anyway, yeah, it just became too much to try to hustle to get it in every week, hustle to get a guest every week. And um, just, it's not, it's great. If I wasn't doing all the editing and writing for After Party Chat, our accompanying website, then it would be completely fine. But I, something had to give and and it's this. And so, um, yeah, you just have to wait an extra week and it's worth the wait because I'm getting better and better guests and I'm putting more and more into it because I have more time with it. Um, I'm not even going to get into how I'm doing and how I'm feeling today because this is truly an epic episode. If you don't know who Dr. Pat Allen is, then you're about to find out. Oh my God, somebody just tried to come and talk to me and he went away because he saw that I've got these mics and I'm talking to you guys. But anyway, uh, Dr. Pat Allen is uh, probably the best known uh, expert on male-female relationships that I know of. Um, She wrote a book called Getting to I Do, which is so politically incorrect. Almost all of the things she says are completely politically incorrect. Um, Anyway, Getting to I Do is a book that a lot of women buy, including myself, read or skim and go, oh my God, this is just antiquated bullshit. I cannot subscribe to this. And then later buy it again and realize that maybe it's not. uh, She knows that. She says that's why it's a bestseller because everybody has to buy it twice. Um, She has spent... 42 years helping men and women learn about how to communicate with each other. Um, she has uh, studied deeply, you know, uh, this is not, this is not coming from nowhere. This is, uh, inc- the result of incredible education. She, uh, she cites Eric Erickson, Carl Jung, uh, Freud, everything she's saying has scientific psychological facts backing it up. So you can't really say that it's antiquated 50s bullshit. Anyway, I'm not even getting, she's been sober over 40 years, this incredible woman. She's 80 years old. She's sharper than pretty much anybody I know. Uh, She does these weekly seminars in LA. She also does one in Orange County. Those happen every week. Um, She has many, many, many books 
um, all of which you can buy on her website. Getting to I Do, you can buy anywhere. Uh, but other books, The Truth Will Set You Free, Dr. Pat Allen's, that's Getting to I Do. She has DVDs, she has CDs, um, she has done workshops, um, relationships and recovery. She's an expert on relationships, but she has, uh, she's an expert on recovery as well. In this episode, we talk about her own addiction. Uh, started drinking at five. So we're talking about somebody who has been drinking, who who drank for a long time. Um, and she is sober from sugar for 11 years. Uh, and as I said, over 40 years sober from drugs and alcohol. And uh, has just lived a life and is one of the smartest and most interesting women I have ever met. I'm a true fan. So it was an honor to meet her. Whether you agree with what she says or not is not really the point. I don't agree with everything at all. Um, I still find it incredibly fascinating. And um, I just appreciate somebody not caring what the politically correct police are going to have to say. Anyway, I'm not really talking about her recovery much, but she has all of this as a result of her recovery. So I'm going to let her tell you everything else. So uh, I'm really proud to present right now Dr. Pat Allen. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh, my God. I think my copy has, like, blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? You know what I mean? For educational, as opposed to, you know, the breaking your anonymity thing. You know, I got an email one day from Alcoholics Anonymous. That's yes. what it said. And they said, we really appreciate what you're doing. Yes. But we encourage you to obey the tradition. Really I got news for you. You're teaching. There's another general services okay. sent. You might want to check with general services. Right, right. So, okay, just to do an introduction, as I told you off mic, I think you are a genius. Well, you know you're a genius. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but I think so, too. Okay. And um, this is uh, probably out of everybody I've had on it, this is the one I'm most excited about. Oh, very good. And um, I, so let's talk about who you are. I will. Okay. So best-selling author, uh, therapist. Let's get specific. You, how do? You, what's your introduction to yourself? Right. So you say um, you you know you are an expert. I know you've studied at Harvard. No, uh, I. St- I have, no, I was certified by the addiction school at Harvard. Oh. See, it's it's like anybody can go to their anybody can go to their training sessions. Literally anybody? No, but I mean Yes, I have a therapist. They right. do they do workshops, they do things. So I would love to sort of trace your history and talk about how you've gotten here. Yeah. Um you do these Monday night uh, and Wednesday. And Wednesday night mm-hmm. seminars. Sh- I know you call it the show. It's the show because we haven't named it yet. And I've been to them. I've been to two, and I find it fascinating. It is fascinating. And God does wonderful things. And so, and those you allow, I think six people. Is that right? Seven, eight. We're 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 cutting down the monologue and the selling at the beginning in order to give more space for people. 
Okay, I like That's that. That's what our new molding is. And and so it's men and women, which shocked me. I thought it would be only women when I went. No. I was it was embarrassed to go because I thought, well, I'm a single woman and it's going to be all these single women trying to get men. It's every age, every sex, every culture, every religion. And and what you do is is somebody sort of comes up into the hot seat or whatever yeah, you want to call it. That's what we they call it. tell you their relationship or dating yes. woe and or success. Are you recording now? I am recording. Okay. Yeah. We're doing the thing. We're doing it. Oh good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So I'm just giving the listener the introduction to who you it. are and yes. who I'm sitting with right now. That's right. So um and they and you give your very frank immediate feedback but scientifically grounded the talk about the scientifically grounded part uh i'm a nerd Mm -hmm. i just love factual data Mm -hmm. and so i give credit to my teachers we all stand on the shoulders of the people that taught us Mm -hmm. so i'm very very good about referring books and movies and shows and whatever in order that people have a good line of information about some idea that I've said, that they don't think it's just off of my head. It's fine that I'm a smart lady. Right. But I like to give credit to the people that helped me understand what I was creatively thinking. Right, right. I've heard, well, young, you reference quite a bit. Well, yeah, yes. I'm a transactional analyst, mm-hmm. which means I'm a lineage-wise, Sigmund Freud through Eric Byrne, who was studying with Milton Erickson. Right. You see? Eric Erickson. Right. Not Milton. Eric Erickson, who I became interested in because I was under the care and feeding of Marilyn Bates and David Kiersey, who were the head of the department at California State University, and they were doing the Myers-Briggs. Okay. Now, the Myers-Briggs test is a test that was built on by a mother and a daughter, built on the work of Carl Jung, that we are all thinking, feelings, intuiting, perceiving people, and that work eventually ended up with me getting interested in Carl Jung. Right. Now, Carl Jung helped Bill Wilson set up the 12-step program when Roland H. couldn't get sober in Akron, and he decided to go over to the Zurich Institute where Carl Jung, at the behest of his wife Emma, who had the money to set up the institute, I didn't know. I've never heard of this Roland, even in my sort Roland of H. He's knowledge. Up. He's AA. So he's the link between Bill Wilson and Carl Jung. And I, for about the last four years, have done a relationships and recovery at Bill Wilson's home bed and breakfast in Akron. Akron. No, not in Akron, but in uh, Vermont. Whatever. I can't remember the name. I didn't know you did this. Oh, I did. Yeah. No, I do that. And I did it. Annually or? I did it for four years. Mm -hmm. And then I stopped because the woman that runs the house, uh, she retired. And I didn't want to go back there out of fear that they would change the the image and the whatever. Right. So I just, I did four years and that was good. Yeah, right. You know, because I can do it here without going all the way back and forth. So 
how do you talk about relationships in recovery as opposed to just relationships in general? Well, relationships in general do not deal with the issue of psychological alcoholism or biochemical alcoholism. There's two forms of alcoholism. No, there's two forms of addiction. Right. One is based on psychological misshaping of your ego. Do you see? Yes. Your prejudices and your delusions that tilt you. Right. And the way it tilts most of us is it tilts men into being yin women, and it tilts women into being yang men. And I always say, and you've seen me in my Monday night, if your daddy walked into the room, would he ask you how you felt or would he ask you how you did? And it, that's, well, he wouldn't talk to me. Right. Well, now you really got a problem because there's an empty space where daddy's supposed to be. So either you're a religious fanatic with God as your daddy or you're your own daddy, which means you're a control freak. Do you see? Yeah. What about Freud and believing that the, you know, the, me- the boy is overly identified with the mother and the woman? He overly- was so hooked up on sexuality, he didn't think about anything past puberty. Right. It was Eric Erickson that built on top of Freud's early stages, oral, anal, you know, yeah. and genital. Yeah. So it was that continuation. Do you see? Yeah, yeah. So you, it just became out of date. No, it became limiting. Okay. Because poor Freud, who had an unresolved electrocomplex with Anna, his daughter, right. who was really his son, because she had been personality-wise tilted right. into an ego-dystonic state, which means her animus, which is a Jungian term, and which, by the way, split. Freud and Jung up. Jung went so spiritual that scientific Freud's doctor, doctor, doctor couldn't stand it. Right. And he said, how could you? How could you do this to your father figure? Because he believed transference was the whole gimmick. Right. You see? So they split, and then Freud's work was called psychoanalysis, which is the study of the infantile sexuality within all of us and where it takes us. And Carl Jung called his analysis. But his belief was that there there was a collective unconscious that we all fed into from our personal unconscious, which created the standard of behaving. Mm -hmm. Well, now, little Eric Burns, studying under Eric Erickson, said... Why don't we just call it the social level and the intentional level of the ego states? The superego being the parent ego state. There's the critical parent. You better do it or I'm going to kill you or God's going to kill you. Right. The super parent, go ahead and do it. You'll get away with it. It'll be all right. The enabling parent. Then you get caught. You should have known. Boom. You got ambushed. And then there is the, uh, let's see, the fun... The nurturing parent, which says, do anything you want, but this is what it's going to cost you. So that's what we all wish we had. That's right. That's the parent that we all wished we had. But those are the people that result. 
In fact, I've had a family where they had a couple of kids that they were raised on the old tradition, and then they had a couple of kids after they had been indoctrinated with this work. The kids were totally, their scripts were totally different. Right. Do you see? Yeah. So parent became what the superego was, should, 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 should. Adult was the computer into which you put your prejudices. All Jews are, all black are, all women are, all men aren't, whatever. Right. And delusions. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to surrender. Right, right. So that's the kid. Then there's a fun-free kid. The fun-free kid and and the nurturing parent make deals. Yeah. The adaptive submissive kid, doormat, doormat, negotiates with the super parent that says, go ahead, you can get away with it. Right. And the rebellious one loves the critical parent. Hmm. But the one that really does us all in is the demon. The demon child plays third-degree games. Somebody's got to die. Somebody's got to get hurt physically. Neurosis is different than psychosis. Right. In that neurosis is just a talk problem. Psychosis is a body problem. So that's the demon is psychotic. Psychotic. How often does a demon child come along? Uh, Well, as often as obsessions and addictions occur. Remember I said in the beginning, there is psychological addiction. That's ego Mm -hmm. created. In other words, your mind and your will decide, I'm going to be a submissive or rebellious or whatever we're going to be. But there's also a genetic one. If you've got a genetic makeup, that if you're schizophrenic, if you're bipolar, if you're addictive genetically, you have the genetic one is 5-HTT gene problem, which doesn't release serotonin properly. Mm-hmm. So we can never rest mm-hmm. because we release our serotonin during our sleep cycles. And if we get shorted out, we crave sugar. Mm-hmm. I recommend the book. The Craving Brain by Dr. Rudin. Okay. I recommend the book by Kay Shepard from The First Bite about sugar addiction, now designated as a mind-altering chemical. Right. Do you see? Yeah. So you can be neurobiologically wounded and addictive, wherein you need medicine. Right. Or you can be psychologically tilted out of shape. Fathers to daughters, mothers to sons. That's where Freud came in so well. And do you see the psychological part as at least more of a choice than? Oh, totally. Totally. And I detest it when I hear people in 12-step programs putting people down for taking medicine from reputable doctors. People die of that. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So so your your genetic can influence the psychological, or no? Always will. Always will. Always will, because you, you're you running around stealing sugar stuff. You're doing weird things. You can tell. I can go to a preschool and, and see the drunks. Yeah. I can see the bullies. I can see the whiners. And I can see the negotiators that know how to take care of themselves by three. Do all are so all addicts start off as sugar addicts? Uh, all biochemical addicts will often go towards the glucose based things. Right. Do you see? Yeah. But beer, my dad started me out on beer. And when I was 
like five years old at a picnic. I remember my first beer. Wow. Do you see? Because my mother in the background is saying, Marty, don't give her that beer. And he said the famous words. Everybody knows that a little beer never hurt anybody. (laughs) Except I'm 80 years old and I remember the effect it had on me. Because my nervous system needed sugar so bad that the direct, even the small amount, I'm hideously, I black out on one drink of hard liquor. Always? Always. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not even there. Right. Wait. Where, okay, your what you talk about in terms of male energy and female yes, energy. that's right. Yin how, and yang. Yin and, yin and yang. How, what the, how does recovery and alcoholism fit into that, or does it not? Yes, it does, because, as I said, Carl Jung was hideously impacted by the Chinese yin and yang. Right. Tremendously. And he talked to Bill Wilson. They wrote letters back and forth. So that this concept of... Of Like, one of the laws in the program is same-sex sponsors, mm-hmm. see? Because even in that directive, anybody who knows anything about therapy or psychology or Freud or Jung will know that a female with a male sponsor is probably aiming for the 13th step. Right. Wherein they will get to screwing around. producing the dopamine, and getting bonded. And I've literally heard men say, well, I'd rather she got addicted to me so I could keep her in the program. Oh, my God. Now, in terms of, it's impossible, I'm sure, to say, but the division of addicts that have yin energy and yang energy. Well, generally speaking, when a man is under the influence of any mind-altering chemical. Now, remember, there's three motivators for behavior. Sex, which produces a tremendous amount of dopamine in the body. Right. Anything to do with money, including robbery, criminality, gambling. Do you see? Yeah. Anything to do with money, power, and prestige produces a tremendous amount of dopamine. Right. And that's... And then... There's the ones you can buy on the street. Just go buy your cocaine. Right. Do you see? Yeah. But ultimately, they all go back to, I've never seen an addict of any type that didn't drink alcohol because it's the quality sugar. Right. The hard booze. Right. Cutty Sark was my drink. Right. You see? Yeah. Do you have sugar today? No, I've been sober off sugar for 11 years. Wow. Interestingly enough, uh, I'm, I am a sugar addict. Right. Okay. But when my husband was dying for six years, my very astute psychic genius doctor said, because he's been with me since 65. I didn't sober up until 71. Mm-hmm. So he's been with me when I weighed 205 pounds at five foot one and a half. Wow. Right? Yeah. That's a lot of weight. Yeah. On a teeny body. So he said in 2001, I think, when my husband was, he was dying of bad back from surfing wound when he was 15, and he was a recovering drug addict. Mm -hmm. And he had a terrible time taking the pain medicine because he kept feeling 
guilty about breaking. Right. But he was following doctor's orders. Right, right. So my doctor, knowing who I was, said, eat anything you want, but don't drink. Right, right. I gained 65 pounds, which brought me right back up to like 200. Right. Okay. And, and I survived. And the moment my husband died, the food went away. Right. There was no dieting because right. I had already achieved sobriety. Right. I was sober as a rock when I was gaining weight because right. I was doing what I needed to do to keep my body comfortable while I was going through this excruciating six-year ordeal. Right. But would you say there are definitely sugar addicts who don't, who don't gain weight? Who who can do it? But you know, I'm speaking of myself. Oh, who can kind of dole those out are the called sugar? Non-purging bulimics. Really? Yeah. Non-purging bulimics. It's people that can control how much they put in their body. Right. But what they put in their body still makes them drunk. Right. Right. I believe you that. See? Yeah. I'm a non-purging bulimic. Right. I've never thrown up pregnant. I've never th- I wouldn't give back any food. It was the last thing on the planet. Right. Cuz I'm a food addict right. as well. Right. The mastication process right. is addictive. Right. Right. Do you Okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about about uh sort of being masculine in career. Yes. Um, and and feminine in relationships. It seems it's like it's called normal. <laughs> it, That's what I achieve. That's what I go for. First of all, I have no problem saying, "Which do you want me to help you be? Right. Do you want to be respected first, cherished second? Right. Do you want to be cherished first, respected second? Right. Or do you want to be respected and cherished equally? And now, if you want it equally. Don't get married and don't have kids because to be a narcissist, which is perfectly normal for a single, they're going to take it out of, you know, uh, the DSM-5 because an individuated, that's that's Jung, Mm -hmm. and an actualized, that's Maslow, Abraham Maslow, Mm -hmm. a person who's individuated and actualized doesn't need to be married to anybody, and doesn't need to have babies because they're a complete unit unto themselves. So when you say they're taking narcissistic personality disorder out of the DSM, is that... They're taking it out. They're changing it into a syndrome, Mm -hmm. but it's only damaging when somebody's suffering from it. If you're a single person with no kids, you're just a highly individuated human being that can do anything, date anybody, be anywhere you want. Well, unless you're that and you don't want to be that. Oh, if you don't want to be that. If you want to be married and you want to have a kid, now you have to go to somebody like me. Right. Because I deal with the quantum mechanics of words. I'm nothing but a quantum physician. I I move energy. Right. It's interesting. I didn't realize it. I told you that I I was under the training of Marilyn Bates and David Kiersey, who wrote Please Understand Me, Mm -hmm. which is a very good book, part of the Myers-Briggs thing. Mm -hmm. And then Kiersey, after Marilyn Bates died, he wrote the second phase for work. Mm -hmm. You know, so between Please Understand Me and the Please Understand Me at Work, 
you've got the whole composite. But the whole thing is based on Carl Jung. Right. And so with that particular issue, when I went to study with Marilyn Bates and David Kiersey, I was, by then, a single woman. I was drinking. I was eating sugar. Do you see? But I was basically doing what I wanted to do as a career woman. Mm -hmm. I was building my career. Then I decided after, you know, I was married for 18 years during this sobering, sober Mm -hmm. process. And I learned my husband, who went to my seminars, took my techniques and got (laughs) me. Oh, my God. Was that his plan from the beginning? From the very beginning. (laughs) He was a genius. So he applied all of the stuff and got me. And did you know that's what he was doing when he was seducing you? I knew it when I was raging at him. What do you mean? Because I inadvertently married someone who could use my stuff with me. Right. Because I was individually a narcissist. Right. But uh, my kids were pretty well grown. Right. And there he was. Right. But he got inside. The movie on that is The Young Victoria. Okay. About Queen Victoria. Right. And how Albert got in her inner world. Did, but... But so any marriage would be uh, losing that narcissism individuation. Yes, dear. You have to then decide what I ask. Do you want to be cherished first by your man or respected first? Right. So which do you want? Let's ask you. Oh, oh, I've gotten super clear. I want cherished. From your man? Yeah. And if you were a woman and you were a cortisone, hypoplasic, adrenalized female, you might be a natural gay woman who's neurologically built. I did the most wonderful work. I worked for a rehab center, a um, California Hotel. Remember the Eagles? Yeah. At California Hotel by the Sea. It's down Laguna Beach. That's New what they Cold were ta- singing about? No, that's the name of their business. It's just a new Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And I had a gay guy in right. the group, mm-hmm. right? And I've been talking to most of the guys about doing good to feel good as male mm-hmm. and feeling good to do good as female. Mm-hmm. And so the women were saying they wanted some. There was a couple of gay ladies, lesbians. Mm-hmm. Well, he sat in the hot seat at that place, and he said, I'm really frustrated. And I said, what are you frustrated about? He said, I've been trying to do good as a man in order to feel good. I said, wait a minute. You're biologically gay. Mm-hmm. I said, you have to feel good to do good. But a biologically gay man could still have male energy. But not enough to build a career. And a cortisone, hyperplasic, adrenalized female, she may want to be a girl. Right. But she better be a lawyer. Right. In my book, that's Andrea. Okay. Getting to getting to I do. But Leslie right. is female, biologically and attitudinally. Right. Well, okay. So my history with getting to I do yes. is that it was recommended to me maybe ten years ago, and then you threw it away. Yeah, I love and how you say And then you, you say bought that. it again. <laughs> my book is a bestseller because people have to buy it twice because they hate it. It's so fifties. Well, I read it's it. It's not fifties. It's based on the the Nobel Science Award work of Roger Sperry, who studied the difference between the right and the left lobe. Well, 
you know, what's interesting is the reason I threw it away was not just because I was, you know, horrified by this antiquated, what I perceive to be an antiquated idea, 50s. but also that I read it and I said, there's no hope for me because I have male energy. I didn't understand the difference between male energy at work and yes. female energy in a personal life. I didn't get that the first it's time I so, read it. I do it all the time. There's a way to talk. I deal with the quantum mechanics of words to impact the quantum physical energy uh, in your body. Right. We girls have yin bodies, but yang souls. Right. Now, if we're biologically gay, our yang soul takes over our body, just like any guy. Right. There are guys that are biologically female. Right. Okay, their biological feminine anima, the soul and the neurobiological makeup, automatically requires that they act female, which right. is feel good to do good, right. and male is do good to feel good. And that goes speaks directly to your what I've heard you say in the Monday night seminars about how you can never ask a man how he feels. You better not, right? Because if he tells you. He's a girl. Right. And if he doesn't tell you, you say he's passive aggressive. Or he cannot win. Well, and he may be annoyed. He will not only be annoyed, he will be reminded <clears throat> why he likes mother over there. Right. Whenever you remember, mom is spelt M A N. Um, but what you were saying about how, uh, a lot of this is determined by a relationship with the father, not with the mother. Yep. Mother is a role model for a daughter to be like her or unlike her. I don't want to ever be like my mother, so to speak. Right. I want to be just like my mother. Right. Okay. Right. So mother is a role model for her daughter and father's a role model for his sons. But father is a protective cherishing godlike entity if you've got a father problem you've got a god problem so interesting well i'll tell you for me personally i've got a father well oh i've got a father who's a piece of work but and so had a fa father problem for a long time and don't believe i have a god problem in recovery okay i don't okay so have you found a way to be feminine at your relationship level. Well, I don't know that I seriously could until I heard you talking about this. And and understanding, I think almost more importantly, that that's what I want. That I don't, yes. that thing that's so effective in work is not effective in my personal life. No, and what you do at work is definitely not effective in your personal relationships unless you want to be respected. And I have no problem with women wanting to be respected, and I have no problem with men wanting to be cherished. None. Right. Zero. Right. I'm not gender biased. Right. I... So, okay, I would love to go back briefly to your yes. own history with addiction. You had that beer at five. Yes, and, and then, I ate sugar, sugar, and, sugar. Right. I was, I ate, I ate chocolate-covered nuts or something. My mother, my mother would hide them. Mm -hmm. I'd find them, five mm -hmm. pounds, because she'd buy them in big bulk. Right. Right? Okay. I My liver shut down twice when I was under 10 years old. Oh, my God. You know what happens? The bile can't handle all the, the, the sugar and the chocolate. And so 
And so you, but you continued to eat sugar until you became abstinent from sugar. Eleven years ago. Eleven years ago. I consider the eleven years from the time I did my binging with my husband's dying process. But you had time before that. Oh yeah, I had time before that. So when did you have your next drink after that beer at five? I drank from then on. What? I drank my father's leftovers around the house. He'd leave a bottle of beer with a little bit in it. Right. My mother used to pride herself on making wine. Right. She was a gourmet whatever. Right, mm. right. Anyway, so I drank beer and wine at home as often as Dad would drink it when he was drinking. But you weren't getting drunk from these Darling, leftovers. I was feeding my neurobiological problem right. genetically. Right. Do you see? Yeah. In other words, you either have to, if you've got a 5-HTT gene problem, you have to train your body to live off the sugar you get in natural foods. Right, right. But if you give it even this, there's a wonderful book by Kay Shepard called From the First Bite. Okay. From the first bite. Right. Your body goes into reaction. Right. When some joker of a hostess puts sugar in her salad dressing right. and I get it into my body, uh, Donut shops bloom in my eyes as I drive down the street. Do you, every restaurant you go to, have to be super clear then? Totally. Now, in, in fruit. Oh, in Louisiana. All right. A couple of years ago, I was lecturing, and I had some gumbo thing with fish in it or something. Right. And I thought I had a stroke. Oh, but okay. I said, no, being a scientist, but everything's working. What's wrong with me? I was centimeters, itsy-bitsies from passing up, blacking out. Oh, my God. Because they had put booze in the gumbo. Right, right. And I said, well, I said, i got to go to bed because I've got a lecture tomorrow morning. I'll either be dead. Or okay. Or okay. Right. And I was okay. Therefore, that was my last big drunk because I'm too sober to take in. It could have been a tablespoon. Right. You know, there are people that die if you have a spoon mixed in with something with nuts. Right, yeah. And they scoop their potatoes with the nut spoon. Right. Anaphylactic shock hospital. Right. So it isn't lots of stuff. It's any stuff. So the minute level of sugar that might sneak into something is going to cause me three days of withdrawal. My God. Well, and the the minute amount of booze. I've accidentally picked up people's drinks. Yes, that's right. That amount of booze, if it was if it was it was hard booze, would put me into a blackout. Wow, I've just always been just horrified and disgusted, and that sort of expression like recoil like a hot flame. Um, yeah. It's because it's happened. It has not happened in years, but it, it's probably happened five times yes. over my sobriety. Um, but I've never felt triggered or altered from it. Then your allergy. I'm I'm hideously allergic. Right. My sister, God lover, is still drinking, and her daughter just killed herself. Oh no! And you know what the process was? This poor little darling. She saw her family as being alcoholics, you know. Right. And so she decided to become fanatically religious. 
Right. You know, joined yeah. a fanatically religious group of people. Right. And acted very powerfully in the church and stayed sober and did it right. Then she got to be 50 years old, menopause. She couldn't sleep. She was having menopausal symptoms. She went to a doctor, and he put her on Ambien. Oh, no. She went on Ambien. It dislocated her. Right. She started drinking and screwed everybody in church. Wow. And ended up drowning herself. Oh, my God. Yeah. Did you ever take Ambien and other pills? No. Never? I never. No. Just straight up alcohol? Just alcohol. I was from the Midwest. And, you know, I didn't, there was no pot and all that stuff. But speed, there was lots of speed around. Yeah, but I didn't, I was married at 19 and had four kids by 26. Right, To right. a normie. I wanted to be in the military, but I was too fat. I applied for the Navy. Okay. Because you can drink in the Navy. And then I applied. I wanted to be a nun. And I was to go on the train to Cincinnati, Wisconsin, to become a nun. And I hate to say it, but they have a drink or two here and there, too. Right. I can so see that. Yeah. So I would be okay there. Yeah. And my father, in a drunken rage, dragged me down a flight of stairs, bang, bang, bang my mm-hmm. head, and I didn't go to the convent and couldn't get into the Navy. So I married the first man that asked me, which was a German football coach and a shop teacher who hated my music, my art, hated all the parts of me that are creative. And, but yet you had... He just died. Okay. And I went to the funeral with my daughters, his daughters. Right. And I got up on the pulpit and I said, I want you all to know how much I appreciate... He divorced me because in that divorce, he freed me to get into the program and to sober up. And since then, you've been married two more times or one more time? Uh, no, I was married I was married to him for mm-hmm. 15 years. Then I was married to a fellow alcoholic under three months sober, mm-hmm. being a rebellious person brat both of us Mm -hmm. we got married but he was already married to somebody else so he was a polygamist (laughs) oh wow okay and and that fell apart within i think a couple years then i married a very nice man you know square 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 right and (laughs) then he became an alcoholic Okay. You know, because I was working, 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 yeah. and so he kept drinking. He's sober now. Right. Which is whatever. Then I did 20 years of nothing, and then I met my husband. He met me at my seminars and and courted me, and we were married for 18. And now you have a boyfriend. See, I'm 80 years old. I know. I, I mean, know. I have, you know, add up all those numbers. What is she, 80? Yes, that's right. I'm 80. Okay, and I've heard you say you're healthier at eighty than you've been I'm, your entire life. I just life. passed my mammogram, and I've had breast cancer. I just yeah. passed my dermatology, and I've had because I have an NER uh, two a genetic predisposition to cancer. To all those c- cancers, or oh, just cancer in general, right? Right. And two of my daughters so far have they have cancer, but we're all alive, right? And I'll tell you why, because we did the spiritual work of being healthy human beings. 
There's a wonderful book, When the Body Says No, by Gabor Matei. Oh, right. And he's done a book, something called A Hidden Ghost, about alcoholism. Well, in the realm of the senses. In the realm. Well, I don't know about that one, but he has one called With the Hidden Ghosts. Okay, okay. Which is specifically about alcoholism. Right, right. Gabor Matei. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and the one that's so good about the neurobiological is Dr. Rudin, R-U-D-E-N, The Craving Brain. Okay. Which is the one about the short on serotonin and craving the glucose. I just recently was reading this book that says, I mean, we sort of touched on it, that that dopamine is about pleasure. Serotonin is about where you stand in the world. I think you... That's right. You talked and about... norepinephrine right. is when you're raised painfully under the age of three, you're wired for pain. So all happy juices like dopamine trigger you into sabotaging. Wow. Isn't that something? Yeah, I used That's to, a norepinephrine. I right. used to be on an SNRI. Yes. And it for years. Yes. And it didn't do anything for me. Okay. Which was I I think it made me worse. It made me more depressed. That could easily be. Yeah. Are yeah. you a pain addict? I don't think so. I do have a bit of chronic pain. Now, the book on this is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. Okay. And it has a whole big chapter stuff about nor, that's nor, no, epinephrine, no uppers. Right. And in England, it's nor adrenaline, no uppers. Right. And that's, those are people that can't stand the happy juice of dopamine. So you give them something, they win the lottery, they get drunk or kill themselves. Right, They right. can't stand pleasure. Right, right. I did, cocaine was my main thing. Okay, that's dopamine. I like dopamine. Okay, well then you're not norepinephrine. Who knows? Yeah, I don't think so. But if you meet people that sabotage, right. have them read Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Okay. Okay. I have a big book list already from this conversation. I'll be listening, taking notes, and then going to Amazon when I listen to this. Feel free. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so what made you get sober? What is so interesting, now you know, as a blackout drunk, I'm also a sex addict. Right. Right? And Patrick Carnes right. is my supervisor at Harvard University Medical School of Addictions. And he's, is he at Meadows or he has nothing he's to do with Meadows? Meadows. Okay. Yeah. No, unless he's retired. Right. But I had him at uh, Delamo. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of the sex ward. Mm-hmm. And he supervised people like me mm-hmm. to be certified as sex addiction specialists, CAS. Mm-hmm. There's an American Academy of Sex. I'm certified in alcoholism and sexual addiction, which is my combination. Now... As a blackout drinker, blackout drinkers aren't necessarily sex addicts in that, but they uh, women are. Really? Yeah. But isn't it okay? You know what it is? No. People ask us to have sex, and we say yes. But is that addiction, or is that uh, being a blackout drinker? It's a blackout drinker, but the result is you wake up as a sex addict sober. So by doing the act, it makes yes. you into a sex addict. No, dear. The dopamine created by the sex is what I was going for addictively. Even though you didn't remember it. I didn't remember it, but when I would drink, 
I would end up having massive sexual. I ruined, I once did a teacher's conference at uh, down by San Diego, and I screwed all the guys. It was weird, and the men, the women all huddled up in their own, in one room. Right. You have no idea. My book, Whore in a Nun's Veil, right. when I write it, is going to be full of wild stories of me doing my thing half of the time, not even knowing I'm doing it. Right, right. But the stories were wild. I'm sure. So the sexual addiction is the dopamine addiction. Right. Do you see? Yeah. Which is the sex addiction. So I'm certified by Patrick Carnes is my supervisor. Speaking of sex, uh, you know, what what I've heard you say several times is this idea that if a woman wants a relationship, yes. she cannot let a man in her mouth, anus, or vagina. Right. Because she'll run the risk of triggering nature's addictive drug, which is oxytocin. Right. The love the love, the love addiction, yeah, the love drug. Um, but what I thought was interesting about it is that you say it's completely fine for a man to, like, have oral sex, to, for him to perform oral sex. Honey, I always say the tongue is built for comforting and petting the clitoris. <laughs> right. The penis is built to impregnate, and many, many women, including me, have an orgasm when the semen hits the cl- the cervical wall. Really? Yes. It's a very stimulating experience. Right. Do you right. see? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I had something really important. To, uh, hold on. It'll come back to me in a second. Um, so, okay, let's go back. Oh, God, I want it to come back to me. Um, but let's go back to what made you get sober. What made me get sober was basically ruining my little... I have a little brain-damaged daughter. She had viral pneumonia at two weeks, and it, she was due in a month, and she didn't have the fever mechanism up, and it burned her brain. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't feel much of anything about the bad things I did. Right. Do you see? Yes, my husband divorced me. Good. Right. That allowed me to eventually, in three years, eventually to surrender to the program. Right. Okay. So my dad used to take my sister and I for walks. My mother would say, oh, Marty, you've been sober six weeks. You can take a walk. He'd walk us to the local bar, drink, give us money to go get candy or whatever we got, you know, and that was that get lost, kids, I got a drink. Right, right. Well, I knew I I had an alcohol problem, and I knew that I couldn't drink hard liquor, okay? Mm -hmm. So this little girl and her little girlfriends, I took them on the train from Orange County up to Alvira Street, Mm -hmm. do you see? Mm -hmm. And turned them loose. Now remember, she's brain damaged. Mm -hmm. And she's probably hmm, 10 years old or some, you know, little age. Mm -hmm. And I went to a bar, and instead of having Cutty Sark, I had Dram Bowie. Okay. I don't black out on it. Okay. What is that? It's a. It's like um, rum. Okay. Dram buoy. Okay. I don't black out on dram buoy. Right. Okay. So I got to see myself drunk for the first time. 
and I saw I saw myself do what my father did with my sister and I. Take the kids someplace, give them money, tell them to get lost, and go to a bar and drink. Right. But the only thing that saved all of our asses was basically I didn't black out. So I was experiencing what I was doing and attaching it to that early memory. Mm-hmm. So that's when I already had a sponsor because I did a 5150 for try to do damage to my husband's body. Okay. Hey. And then I was remanded to a therapist, you know, after that. And I got the lucky opportunity of going to Renato Monaco's psychiatrist. Okay. Okay. He's still practicing and he must be a hundred years old. And at that time he was a bioenergetic therapist, mm-hmm. you know, physical. Mm-hmm. He's now an EMDR. He okay. Went, he got upgraded and trained to be an EMDR therapist. Yeah. Okay, so he so think of me as being an EMDR, re-experiencing the disassociation of my feelings from my father's drinking. Right. And my father was a furniture throwing and my mother was a priest calling, you know, all kinds of nuttiness. So my feelings and my thoughts were separated. Do you see? Right. So I was going to this therapist and getting in touch with the me that I am now today, do you see? Mm -hmm. But that experience of ruining a birthday party Mm -hmm. was worse than waking up with strangers, doing stupid things, Mm -hmm. do you see? Yeah. It was my bottom. And then, so I went to the meeting that I normally get eleven o'clock meeting at the Act Alano Club in Anaheim. That's where I sobered up. Mm-hmm. So I went to the meeting, and of course everybody they called me Crazy Pat, the school teacher. Right. I would stand up at any meeting and say, "If you would start a prospective members chapter, I could join," which indicated willingness. Because it is a prospective members program in many ways. I know that, but. But I wanted to drink while I went to the pro, and I did for yeah. three solid years. Oh, that's I had awful. a wonderful sponsor, Sue M., who's probably dead now, mm-hmm. but she would drag me around to her speaking engagements. Mm-hmm. I'd go to a meeting and then go to the bar and get drunk. Mm-hmm. Do you see? Mm-hmm. So for three years, I did that. That sounds awful when it people tell me about awful. that. That is awful. Because the last place you want to be when you're drunk or high is a meeting. Well, no, I did that after the meeting. Still, I would to go, go to the meeting sober. But still, to have that, you know, as and they say, head full of AA. It. But you know what? Willing is enough. Yeah. And they loved me. Right. And a guy named Bob on G- on January 2nd, 44 years ago, stood on the heater floor panel in the Alano Club in Anaheim and talked to me about risking sobriety. Right. Just risking the change, because I had not still lived without booze right? on a pretty much within three-day basis. Right. So I'd never really been sober. Right. Okay? So what I did was I said, okay, I stood up at the meeting that night. I went to 11 o'clock, mm-hmm. talked to him in the afternoon, mm-hmm. went to the evening meeting, and stood up and said, I think I'm an alcoholic. They cheered. Right. They made me secretary of the newcomers' meeting. Right. Immediately. Right. 
okay? And I turned it into the biggest meeting, right. you know, as possible. Right. So I put my girlfriend, Drinker, into the program. I invited her to a meeting, and I put her list on the newcomers list. She, she's, and so-and-so is a newcomer. She said, I am not, right. and walked out. So that was, she's now sober, sober and headed up a driver drinking program in a place unknown to us. I know where it is, but I'm not sure. Right. Okay? Yeah, that's that's amazing. And that was 44 years ago. That was 44 years ago, January 2nd. Um, And then I wanted to talk, we have to wrap up because you're done. Yes. Um, But... I wanted to just have listeners know all your books. Besides Getting to I Do, there are... Getting to I Do, the one that's really good is over my doctoral work, Conversational Rape. Okay. That you have to get from my office. Okay. Okay. Then there's Staying Married and Loving It. Mm -hmm. Then there's a new book out, and it's called Dating Advice for Alpha Women. Okay. Which is teaching women how to pretend... There's also, uh, what else have I written with? I write with my students now. Right, right. I met one of them. Who the, did you meet? At your seminar. Well, or who, your, at which the show. Was it a man or a woman? A man. Oh, that was, he wrote, he's, he and I wrote the dating advice for an alpha woman. And so wait, when you say dating advice for an alpha woman, it's the alpha woman at work who wants to be the feminine woman in you her got personal it. life. You're right? absolutely right. right. Now, getting to I do is my biggie. Yeah. Okay, and that's about choose what you want. You want to be respected, cherished, cherished, respected. Right. It's still in the stores. Oh, yeah. Right? Staying married and loving it has a lot of tools in it, but people want to get married, but they don't necessarily want to stay married. Right, right. But the one conversationally, and it has addiction issues in it, is uh, conversational rape. Now, and so for people who want to find you, you have a website, Dr. Pat Dr. Allen. Dr. Pat Allen, and there's also oneinstitute.org. Right, and that's... And that has book lists and stuff on it. And that's that's a program you created, the well, One Institute? Well, I have a school. Okay. I teach people how to do androgynous semantic realignment. Right. Do you see? Yeah. That's my doctoral work. And that you do it, you teach them through workshops? I teach them through classes. Right. I do two seminars, one in Orange County, that's free. Right. Uh, on Wednesday night from 7 to 8.30, and I do one for $10 because the room costs a lot. Right, on Mondays. On Mondays at the Odyssey Theater in Los Angeles. And do you also train therapists to, t- yes. to, to do your... Yes, right. Um, I supervise. So, but anybody outside of Los Angeles, this podcast goes everywhere. They they can only read They're the books. online. Okay. We have online classes okay. that you can get. Just go to drpatallen.com or theoneinstitute.org. Right, right. The One Institute is a nonprofit educational and charitable corporation. Okay. It's a school. Right. Do you see? And people, you take clients. You have room for new I clients. Am, I am a cognitive behavioral therapist, right. which means there is no every week. It's as needed. Right. So I can deal with a big volume of people. Right, right. It's almost impossible not to be able to get in to see me on a weekly basis if you want it. 
Right. That blew my mind when when I heard that after yeah, your seminar. No, because after your the work show. I do, see, cognitive behavioral therapy is think, speak, and do. Beware of your thoughts, for they become words. Right. Beware of your words, they become habits. Right. Beware of your habits, they become your character. Beware of your character, it becomes your destiny. Bank making money, doctor's office being well, and in every single relationship, especially addictive ones. Right. And an addiction is the chemistry you create or you buy that allows you to do normal things in abnormally destructive ways. And that can include religion, that can include cleaning house, that can include anything that produces a chemistry in your body or you buy it off the street. Right, right. And how do people know if they're doing love relationships like that? They're not love relationships. Right. Sex. Right. Sex, money, and mind-altering chemicals are the motivators that I know. Right. Love addicts are sex addicts or anorexic sex addicts. Right. They will automatically set up a bummer deal. Right, right. And how? How? Yeah. How they do don't you? keep commitments. They don't make them and keep them. Right. The only way you know you love yourself is by the commitments you're willing to make and keep. Right. If you don't make commitments with your partner and you don't keep the ones you make, you are a norepinephrine addict. Right. Well, this has been fascinating. I am so excited to post this one, to have Good. had this conversation with you. And I'm so grateful to you for doing it. So So may you be a great, successful man at work (laughs) and a loving, passive, patient, vulnerable woman after work with your man. I mean, from your lips to God's ears and to my ears, of course, because we work together. Thank you. Okay, that was a lot to unpack, you guys. I have already listened to this episode twice, and I don't even like listening to my own voice at all. So that was Dr. Pat Allen. Go find her online at drpatallen.com. Also at wantistore.com. You can find her on Facebook. Uh, You can go to her seminars if you're in the LA area. Just all of that information is on her website. And um, I hope you loved this one. And keep, you know, keep listening. Stick with me through this every other week thing. Thank you. Bye.